Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This show is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism. Now, Minnesota is becoming more racially diverse, but many communities in the state remain predominantly white. So today I want to talk about what we say to our kids about race and racism when they live in a place where they are mostly white people. My guest today is Louise Derman Sparks. She has more than 50 years experience working with young children and caregivers with a specific focus on anti-bias activities. She's the author of several books on the subject, including What If All the Kids Are White? The book focuses on how to talk with white children about race and racism. Welcome, Louise. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. I'm glad to be here. Just a note to our audience, because of the pandemic, we're doing an interview over Zoom and the sound quality isn't what we'd like. But Louise is a true treasure, and I hope you can listen to her wise words. So, as I said, Minnesota is becoming more diverse, but many communities in the state still kind of remain predominantly white. And I work in the field of early childhood in Minnesota, and a comment we often get from educators in these areas is, why should I take diversity training if all my children are white? Tell me, what do you say to an educator that has this question? Okay, well, with the basic concept that racism is systemic in our country, which means that it's part of our history, it's part of the structures, the institutions, as well as interpersonal relationships. And we have a long history of racism and a long history of struggle against racism, but it is still very much with us, as we can see from the tragic situations that are happening in your state right now. Mm -hmm. So, Young children begin to pick up the messages from the larger society, as well as from their families, about what it means to be in different racial groups. They notice that people don't look the same, and they're very interested about it. But by around three or four, they are also picking up, unfortunately, the stereotypes, misinformation about who we are racially. Mm -hmm. So white children are picking up prejudices around three or four? White children are picking up the prejudices and the misinformation and discomfort from many, many sources, not necessarily just from their families. And they don't also need to have diversity within their communities to pick up these stereotypes because they're everywhere. Yes. They're in movies. They're in, you know, on, on TV shows. They're on lunchboxes. They're on, you know, T-shirts, the way that people are presented. They're in greeting cards. They, they, they surround us. Mm-hmm. And kids also, as we know, have very, very good hearing. And they pick up comments from adults, even when they don't know that kids are picking them up. Right. So what can we do about that? So all children need support and help and guidance, I believe, in in both developing a strong sense of who they are without needing to feel superior or inferior to anybody else. And unfortunately, white children 
get many messages that being white is the normal thing or the right thing or the thing that gives you power that is better to be white. And they begin to pick this message up very early because, again, they see it in their environment. Mm -hmm. Just as kids of color begin to pick up messages that they don't have power or that something may not be right about their language or or about how their family lives or, or how they look. And adults, parents, and early childhood teachers have a very important role to play in helping kids counter negative messages. And I consider white kids learning that they're better than other people because of the color of their skin is a negative message because it's not real. Right. It's a false message. It's not based on who a child really is. It's based on beliefs that require putting other people down. So I think that white children need anti-bias education just as much as children of color need it, because the underlying hope with anti-bias education is that children become fully who they are without having to carry the weight of negative messages about who they are, without having to carry the weight of discomfort or fear about people who are different from them. So based on your research and experience, what might be some of the benefits for white children in all white communities and and other children as well? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that for white children, the benefit, as I said, that they learn to be who they are, to be proud of who they are, to be confident of who they are without having to feel that they have to be superior to people who are of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Mm. I think that's a false self-confidence. I think it's a false self-identity because, you know, what happens when somebody of color, a classmate or a member of the community does something better than you, that can create a a very uncomfortable feeling about themselves. Absolutely. So you've written a whole curriculum on anti-bias training with specific goals to benefit children. Tell me about those. The first goal of anti-bias education is to help all children develop a strong sense of who they are and in all their different aspects of their identity. The second I benefit is that we are a diverse society and we are going to stay a diverse society and become more a diverse society. This ought to be something that we appreciate and enjoy and look forward to instead of causing fear. And that's what is happening to a, a large part of our white population, I think. Yeah. So the, the goal of helping kids feel comfortable with diversity means that white children learn how to thrive and, and, and to be part of a diverse country and a diverse world. Mm, okay. And then the third goal of anti-bias education is learn to think critically about misinformation, about untrue stereotypes, and finally, For children to learn that if something is not fair, you can work with other people to make it better. That's what gives people the power to resist and to counter oppression or discrimination and and to do something about it. Right. Thank you for laying that out. So how would you recommend uh, caregivers and educators that are living in these communities that are mostly white? How would you recommend that they introduce conversations about race and racism into their children's lives? Mm -hmm. Well, first, um, they they need to be able to talk about it among themselves. Right. The teacher has to feel comfortable talking about issues about race or prejudice or stereotypes with young kids, which I believe can be done. 
it needs to be done because this is when they're beginning to pick up the stereotypes. Right. So, and, and, and when I'm talking about, I'm not talking about heavy theoretical discussions, I'm talking about just how do you see yourself as a white person? What does it mean to you? You know, what were the messages you got from your family or from your community? So these are things adults should ask themselves before talking with kids. People have to start having these conversations. I don't think they have to do it forever before they work with kids, but they need to have a few conversations before they start. Then I think if most of the kids are white, if all the kids are white, you start with looking at who you are. Mm -hmm. All kinds of activities that early childhood teachers know how to do with children. It's not really adding a whole lot, but it does mean that we can talk about what skin color, do we have freckles or not, what color eyes do we have, what kind of hair do we have, is it curly, is it straight, you know, what, how many, who's in your family, who's in your family, so what does your family do, families do a lot of things that are the same, and they also do things that are different, and so we're constantly exploring the idea of people are the same and different at the same time, and there's plenty of diversity among white children. That's true. We want to establish that people have differences and it's okay. And then I think that teachers need to learn how to listen to children and open up conversations about what children think about how do we get to have our color of skin. I mean, kids have all kinds of theories, which we are not aware of unless we're talking with them about you know, how you look and how other people look and where where does it come from and what does it mean? Once you know what the ideas that your children are thinking, then you begin to develop activities. You use books, you use visitors, you use stories, stories with dolls, mm-hmm. you know, and then in the process of doing that, something's going to come up. Oh, yeah. Do you have an example of when something comes up in a family or an early childhood classroom? One of the early examples I had was the teacher had been doing the kinds of activities we're talking about. And one of the kids, you know, in childcare and preschool, people use Band-Aids all the time. One of the kids hurt themselves. And this time when the teacher looked at the box, it said flesh-colored Band-Aids. And suddenly, you know, dawned on her. This is not true for all kids. Now, this was in a school where there was racial diversity. Anyway, so she asked the kids, she says, you know, it says the box says it's flesh colored. And they talked about what that means. And then she had the kids say, do you think that's true? And they did a little scientific test and they put Band-Aids on everybody, you know, and they and then they went around to other classes in the, in the preschool program. And they found out that, in fact, it was not true. Yes. The Band-Aids not flesh colored for everybody. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I... I- I had a fight with one of my teachers in fifth grade when they, he insisted that I was doing something flesh colored. And I told him that is not the color of my flesh. So. <laughs> you see? Yes. <laughs> and, and then, of course, they, you know, they dictated a letter to the Band-Aid company mm-hmm. and then they did a field trip to walk to the post. I mean, and I'm being in detail because early childhood teachers know this is their toolbox of activities. It's not adding anything new. Right. And then they got back a letter saying that they, with a coupon for invisible band-aids, you know, the transparent <laughs> band-aids. But oh, that's funny. <laughs> band-aids being flesh-colored or not, is not going to change systemic racism. But for young kids, this is something that's in their life. And apparently, I'm very glad to have your story because it reinforces <laughs> that these little things matter. They do. Identity comes from all these little things. And from the silence 
of adults around all the things that happen to them because we don't even know that they're thinking about it or we think that they don't need to know about it. So kids are having to develop their understanding of issues that are difficult and that hurt their feelings without adult help. You're listening to Early Risers, Waking Up to Racial Equity in Early Childhood, and I'm Diane Halsey. My guest today is Louise Derman-Sparks, former early childhood teacher, professor, and author. I've seen you talk about how to choose anti-bias books. What is the best advice you can give to a parent about how to do that? Well, there's lots of books, and some of them are not so good, and some of them are much better. It it helps if the author or the illustrator is of the same background as the people they're writing about. I'm not saying it's necessary, but as a a general rule of thumb, you know, there's less chance it's going to be stereotyping if it comes from someone who knows the group. And and I've heard you talk a little bit, too, about, you know, it's, it's more than just reading the story. So what do you do after you've read the story? How do you make the most of even a very diverse library of children's books? Well, you want to ask kids what they think about it. What are their ideas about the book? Because that's what leads you to other activities. Right. The other thing that people are using, which is a one-time investment, are dolls, what we call persona dolls. Mm. And that's just a fancy word for these dolls are the teacher's dolls. And the teacher gives them a personage. So they have a name and a family. If I can just take a second, I'm going to go grab one. Oh, sure. (laughs) So here's one of my persona dolls. Very cute. (laughs) Shall we call you Sandra? And and Sandra lives with her, her grandmother and her mother and her father. And her grandmother takes care of her because her mother is working as a teacher and her father is working in a factory. And these are the things they like to do as a family. So on Sundays, they go to church in the morning and then they, they come home and Sandra's aunts and uncles and cousins come over and they have dinner together. And then you can have also that she celebrates like Kwanzaa at Christmas time, which if you want to introduce something new. And then once you know her a little bit, say that the other day in school, a child said to her that her skin was dirty because of brown, and that really hurt her feelings. You know, she knew that her skin wasn't dirty. And the teacher can say to the kids, what do you think the teacher should do? What can we do to help her with her feelings? The dolls become a way to deal with issues that are about identity and diversity and prejudice or stereotypes. And you don't have to keep buying books. <laughs> you have ah, the dolls and the dolls last because they're yours. So that's another way to supplement books. So you could have several dolls of different races. Right. And each one has their own name and, and, and their own story behind it. And then you can talk through whenever you want to things that might be happening with, you know, these different personalities. Exactly, because you want a couple of dolls that look like the kids who were in the classroom. You want at least a boy and a girl doll. If, if you're into gender fluidity, you can also talk about a doll who is non-binary, but that's, you know. Sure, sure. That's wonderful. They are a very powerful way of working with kids because they allow the teacher to develop stories that work with what's going on in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And the kids also come to really identify with them. Mm. This is fascinating, um, all this about the, the dolls. I can already in my, my mind, I'm thinking of so many different 
scenarios where using the dolls could be very helpful in a classroom and also just as a parent. I, you know, presume you could use it as well. Given what's going on in Minnesota right now, and I think it's impossible to prevent kids from hearing about the trial and, and, and Dante's death. I think that the dolls can be very useful. Mm, so glad you said that. Yeah. And it doesn't matter, you know, what the ethnicity or the race or look of the doll is. We can say that Sandra heard, you know, on, saw on TV that the police shot somebody and she's really upset about it. And she wants to know she's scared because she thinks she might get shot. Um, you know, she's afraid maybe her daddy might get shot. And, you know, and by this time, if a kid is worried about it, they'll probably chime in and say something. And I, I think that kids need to hear that that was really sad, that it was wrong to do, that there are people who, who really care that it happened, who want to try and stop it from happening. And also that with young kids, it's probably important to know that this is not all police. I mean, this is not the time to talk about restructuring police with very young children. Right. And that also that as your parent or as your teacher, I'm going to do everything I can to keep you safe. This is a time to have that kind of conversation with children because it's very frightening. And as I said, it's impossible for kids to not to know that this is happening. Kids are watching it. Yeah. But as part of the story, then you say, if they don't raise it, then you say, well, have you heard anything about this? You know, how are you feeling about it? Because we need to help them cope with their feelings, their fears, whatever they're they're thinking about it, their confusion about it. So that's why the dolls are useful, because you may not find a picture book for children about the topic, but you can open it up with them. That is so incredibly helpful. I know that there's a lot of parents in Minnesota, and I'm sure other places, but and particularly in Minnesota, that are really struggling with how to talk with their children about all that is happening, um, the Derek Chauvin trial, um, the death of Dante Wright, um, and, and just so many other things that have been happening this, this year. And so I really like the use of the, these dolls to kind of help open up a conversation, you know, with a young child about this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I am of a firm belief that the talking with children about hard issues is what helps them learn how to cope with them and to become resilient, pretending that they're not happening. And sort of covering it up just leaves kids to develop all their own ideas about what might be happening. And and some of those ideas can be pretty upsetting to the kids. Yes. I don't think it hurts them to open up the issues. It's just the it's the silence that is really painful. And I you know, kids need to understand if they're seeing, say, the demonstrations or, you know, the fireworks or the tear gas. That's frightening. And I think, you know, being helping them understand that people are very angry and they're upset and they're trying to say what they think. And also whatever your particular values are around that. You if you, you may say, I think that's a good way to let the police know that they're unhappy about it. Or you can say, I don't think that's the best way to do it, but I understand that they're angry. You can shape your stories to your particular beliefs while still opening them up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I hope you're not telling people that the people who were killed deserved it, but I'm sure there are some people who were telling their kids that. So There's so many things I like about what you're saying, but I I did hear you say that it's the silence that is really damaging. And so I, and I think 
a lot of times when parents don't know what to say, they just default to saying nothing or trying to diminish because they don't want their children to be frightened. But what I hear you saying is that the exact opposite should be happening, Mm -hmm. that we should engage our children in these conversations um, in ways that are developmentally appropriate so that they can um, learn to cope with them. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, giving things a name makes them visible and also manageable. It's kind of like, you know, the the fears that kids will have of of, of monsters coming out of the walls or something. If, If we name them and talk about them, we give them some reality. I think another thing that parents sometimes will say, well, don't worry about it. Or it's not for you, you know, or I'll tell you later. My rule of thumb is if a child is asking about it, it's time to talk to them. Yes. The question is what you say, how much you say, how you say it. I wouldn't engage with young kids with a long discussion about the history of policing in the United States. No. But you always can find something to say that's appropriate to that child's question and that child's age. All of this is really heavy that we've been dealing with these past um, few months. Talk about what, how important it is to also celebrate all of our cultural differences and the joy that that can bring um, to all of us. Yeah, I think that we do both, that we ought to be celebrating who we are and all the wonderful things that all different people have contributed. And we can start that really early, even simple things like having portraits of people from different racial and ethnic groups who have participated in making the world a better place. Yes. And also just to celebrate how different people live. I mean, I think in the midst of uh, tragedy, it's really important to find beauty. That's how resilience, I think, happens. Mm -hmm. So glad you said that. Yeah. I think my own upbringing taught me that it's really possible to do both. As a a Jewish person, that's always been an issue in my life. And I I was a kid during the Holocaust. I was here, but you you knew about it. And part of the discussion of during the the Passover Seder, there's always a section about seeing the sweet and the bitter together. Even one of the ritual foods, we put horseradish and a sweeter food together and you eat it in a little matzo sandwich. So you're eating grief and joy at the same time. I've been thinking about that a lot because it really does talk about some very harsh stuff. And you're you're sitting at the Passover table from the time you're, you're a little kid. I don't understand it when you're a little kid, especially if your grandfather is talking in Hebrew. But when you start doing it in English, <laughs> you, you very early on learn about slavery, the hard times, plagues, you know, that locusts came and the, mm. that Moses had to be rescued from being killed. Those are in the story. And at the same time, you celebrate that we're free and that we, and we also have a responsibility to help other people because of that experience. This is so incredibly helpful. You know, I read an article you wrote and in this article, you um, set up a little scenario. You said when a child makes a comment that reflects biased ideas about human diversity, many adults do not directly address the underlying issue. For example, while taking a walk around the block and passing people wearing masks, a four-year-old white child points to a white person and asks her mother, is that a nurse? Her mother replies, no, that is one of our neighbors wearing a mask to help her and us stay well. 
A little later, they pass a masked person with dark skin. The child points and states, that's a robber. This time, her mother stays quiet, not knowing what to say. So Louise, um, what should she have said to that child? So I think after you take a deep breath or a gulp, <laughs> right. uh, I think I, I would say, why do you think that way? What makes you think that, that this person is a robber? That's important because probably a child will say, well, robbers wear masks. And, and I mean, well, where did you see robbers wearing masks? Well, this is on TV. And so now you know the context that the child is coming from. And then I think you can say, well, Sometimes people who are robbers wear masks. But now when we're walking around our block, we are seeing our neighbors and our, all our neighbors are wearing masks to keep us safe and to keep themselves safe. And the person we just passed is a neighbor is not a robber. And that's all you have to say, really. What's hard is to face those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. So my, my two kids were now, my oldest is 55. When he was about five, he um, announced at the dinner table one day, I don't want to be black anymore. My kids are adopted. And, you know, when a parent hears that, this was like a little knife. And my husband and I have both been activists, civil rights activists and social justice for a while. I'm, so, I'm actually, he was younger. He was about three and a half or four. He was younger than five. I gulped and gasped and I said, well, how can you think that way? And he said, well, because I want to be in emergency. There was a program on, called Emergency, which was fire trucks were running around being paramedics. And they were all white. Oh, I remember that show. Yeah. He was being very paramedic about it. I want to be one of those people. And if I want to do it, I can't be black. And then, of course, we realized we had to try and help him meet some black firemen and, and got books and whatever. But it made me realize how early kids are paying attention to not just diversity, but to the power issues around diversity, which are the relationship issues around diversity. Fascinating. So, so I think the conversation starts with what the child says and you find out what they're trying to ask if you can. And then you just, you respond to the specific thing the child raised. If you see a pattern, then you have to think about how would I help a child overcome a fear or a discomfort about anything? And usually it's through exposure and through experience and through talking with the child about what, what it is they're afraid of. And gradually you begin to make a change about it. Now, I'm going to ask you a question for all the parents out there that are now cringing as they're thinking about those situations where they <laughs> didn't quite make the mark in answering their child's question. So if a child asks a question and the parent kind of doesn't act right in the moment because they're shocked. Can you go back and do some repair? Yes. I mean, one of the benefits of parenting is that you have them for a long time. Right. Yes, you can always go back. And the teachers can go back, too. They may not have them long enough to go back, but they can go back, too. But in the interim, parents or teachers need to talk with someone about this happened and I didn't know what to say. Or if they don't have anyone to talk about it, at least do some thinking, reflection about it. You know, why was it so hard for me to respond? What do what would I like my child to know? But what stopped me from talking? Before you go back and then just say kids are, you know, they're pretty resilient and they're pretty forgiving. Remember when that happened? Well, I've been thinking about it and here's what I would like to say about it. Mm, that's good. 
And it's not going to be a one-time thing anyway. As a parent, you get a chance to talk with them about issues with more information and more ideas as they get older. But, you know, I don't think we ruin our kids with one mistake or two mistakes or three mistakes. We don't be a total mess. I hope you're right, Louise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, Louise, I have had an absolutely delightful time talking with you. I have learned a lot. Thank you so much for coming on to Early Risers. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. I've been talking with Louise Derman Spark. She is an author, an activist, and she's also my hero in this work. This is Early Risers from Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you to our executive producer, Andrea Bork, our producer, Melissa Townsend, technical director, Alex Simpson, and the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. And thank you to Kaviesh Kavaraj for our theme song, I Still Remember. To learn more about this conversation and to hear more episodes, go to npr.org backslash early dash risers. And to get more resources about talking with very young children about race and racism, go to littlemomentscount.org. 